The additional rain will will eventually result in, in um, growth that could fuel future fires. It could also result in trees being healthier and being more resistant to pinebark beetles. So it's really hard to say. Welcome back to part two of our mini-series on what actually happened during the California floods this winter. If you missed part one, I do recommend going back and catching up on last week's episode. To recap, we introduced our guests, Tom Larson and Kent David, to talk about the weather patterns that caused this unusual series of rain events and why flooding is such a hyper-local phenomenon. This week, we're going to find out what these storms might mean for California's wildfire season and future climatic patterns. And don't forget, we always welcome our listeners to reach out to us on social media, where you can find us using the handle at CoreLogic on Facebook and LinkedIn, or at CoreLogic Inc. on Twitter and Instagram. But it certainly was uh, of concern. I think certainly we are uh, we're off the hook. Is there's a lot of precipitation that's trapped in the mountains in snow right now. So that was a yeah uh, savior. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up, Tom, because that's kind of a looming thing that we haven't really talked about, too, is the level of snowpack. And when that melts, is that going to cause extra flooding, too? I mean, I think that's something that should be on the radar. Are we concerned with that? Well, absolutely. Um, the worst flood ever in, the, in modern uh, California history was in the 1800s. Um, mm -hmm. And it was caused by a winter of prodigious snowfall and then a... Uh, late winter a lot of warm rain that melted the snowfall so it, yeah. it exacerbates it so you have a, a wet ground and then you have this massive amount of runoff the amount of uh, snow that we have in in the sierras uh, is significantly exceeds the amount of reservoir space that we have okay one other thing that i just has been kind of crazy with all of these storms that the one at the beginning of March was the amount of snow that we got in California. Like, this is crazy. I remember the year I, I moved to California, it was this big deal about how well, we were finally going to get snow. And there was snow at something like 10,000 feet. I had friends building snowmen in their backyards in the Bay Area. Like there was snow at 250 feet elevation. Like I know we were driving down the street. You could see snow from our house. Tom, I know you could see snow in your backyard. Like, can we talk a little bit about what happened to bring all of this snow to the Bay Area? You know, make clear that the snowfall was incredible. Here in the, the San Francisco Bay Area, you see snow every 10 years or so, and, and it gets written up and it's quite exciting. But yeah. what was unusual this year was the breadth, the geographic breadth of the snow. We saw sure. snow down in San Bernardino Mountains in Los Angeles. We saw tremendous flow in the California foothills. Um, and we saw a lot here. And it's not just the, the geographic breadth, but it was the how deep, you know, it was it was really fun to see. Yeah, like billions of feet of snow in Tahoe. Like it was so crazy. And like I seeing these pictures of like Los Angeles with like the the palm trees in the forefront and then the snow on the mountains in the background, like it was just incredible. Yeah. And you know, and 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 we get it because for us it's novel and it was a it was a mild inconvenience for us here in, in the Bay Area. They're yeah. certainly the the those who crash their cars, it's more than mild. But for you know for society for the clients that we support mm. where the really the biggest the most severity were in the areas where they normally get these small accumulations of snow and they had massive and when i say small is okay a big storm three storms a year that have a foot or two of snow 
And then all of a sudden, in one storm, they got eight feet of snow. Wow. And it led to, you know, widespread confusion. These are areas that weren't geared up to really manage that uh, level of snow. And remember that it happened simultaneously to everywhere it got it. So there, the resources, we ran low on the resources to be able to support that, the snow plows and mm. response that people need. Yeah, we're not ready to support that here in California. We don't have the infrastructure in place to support it. It is a challenge. And you think about it, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about what is our you know, climate change future. And, and we have to remember that the one of the key precepts of climate change is that what we've done in the past is not necessarily a good planning mm. scenario for what's in the future. And and while the, the book is not written on, you know, what are the climate change uh, effects upon this recent, recent event? You know, how, how much was the attribution of climate change into this event? We do have to wonder is, do we have to step up? Sort of like how many fire departments do we need? Do we need to have a whole bunch of snowplows even though around ready mm. for these massive snowfalls, even though we know that in the big picture, there'll be less snow. Much. Yeah. Southern Central Valley, that is a major concern to me because the snowfall, the amount of snow water equivalent in the hills there is two to three times the average. It's still snow, but it's, what happens to snow? It melts. Yeah. The, we ex used to be um, called the Tulare Lake was the biggest lake um, in the U.S., bigger than the surface area, bigger than the Great Salt Lake. It's all farmland now. Wow. It's so it's a lake bottom, and it's dry, but it probably won't be this year. It has in the last 25 years. They have to pump it out. It has to. They have to pump it up so it can get to a river and go to the ocean. Interesting. Or they did last time. Wow. And so uh, the big question is, what are we going to do with all that water when it comes? Um, yeah. it, it exceeds the amount of available reservoir capa capacity. We know it's coming at us in, in the next three or four months. So that's the the one that should give us uh, some alarm. There are num numerous communities that are uh, at risk. There's a, a big part of the farming, uh, very productive farming area in, in California. And simultaneously, we've got the depletion of the underground water aquifer that you, you uh, emotionally, you want us to put that water back into the ground and not have it go to the ocean. But it takes time and you have to take farming land uh, out of production to do that. So it, uh, it, it, is, a, it is a risk. Um, combating that, we have most of those reservoirs, they have, uh, many of them are flood control. And any flood control mm -hmm. reservoir, they're not full now. They're, they're purposely releasing water to maintain a reserve so that they can capture. And we could go through, you know, along the coast of where the uh, flood control reservoirs are to moderate the flows. So it, okay. it is a risk, it, yeah. but it's not one that's um, taken idly. It's certainly actively monitored. Okay. And the flip side, the, the I mean, to, to further that kind of beneficial impacts, you know, given that, that this was tremendously impactful in a negative way, um, on the flip side of that, we've been in this long, enduring mega drought in, in the mm -hmm. West. Um, and the, the North Bay, uh, Marin in particular, is not connected to the, uh, the Sierras in terms of uh, access to water. They, they, they rely solely on local reservoirs. And as a result of this storm, they've they've essentially filled all of their reservoirs and are, are now in a position where, um, you know, this next summer, this next dry period will probably be one that's much less stressful 
um, and more more survivable than than where they were just you know two months ago or three months ago. Yeah. So, um, and as as Tom said, the snowpack um, uh, building up it. The reservoirs writ large in the in the state have not all filled up, but we're in a much better position to address this drought issue now than we were before before these the onslaught of these storms. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you mentioned this drought too, because I think when we look back at what the the meteorologists, if we look at you know our National Weather Service at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, they were predicting a dry winter this year. I don't think anybody really anticipated it being as wet as it's been. So what happened? So so a, a, a good friend and colleague of mine likes to say that, that all models are wrong, but some models are useful. Is that colleague Tom Larson? <laughs> that, indeed, that is. <laughs> um, and in this case, when you're talking about climatological models and long long range weather models, uh, what they were saying was it looks to be due to the, the um, the fluctuations in sea surface temperatures in the West, okay. uh, in the in the Pacific Ocean, that we were, you know, there was a, a decent chance or a, a good chance that we would have a dry, um, a dry winter. And where that where it's wet and dry is kind of a, a north south mm-hmm. line of demarcation. The California's Bay Area, the the middle of the coast, is usually that point of inflection. So wet or dry can go north or south from there. But that's all talking about the climatological expectations. Within within any of those expectations, there's a wide range of potential outcomes. Yeah. And so, even though we wouldn't expect, we were expecting it to be we the the meteorologists were expecting it to be a dry winter for much of California. Um, it, it's not totally unexpected that you'd have a wet winter. Sure. You know, it's just not it's not the um, it's not the the most likely outcome, but it's certainly a possible outcome. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration did indeed forecast California to have a drier than normal winter season. However, that didn't turn out to be the case. According to the Golden Gate Weather Services, which analyzed data for the National Weather Service, there are 13 counties that had more than 100% of the rain expected in a quote-unquote normal season. Another 12 had over 90% of normal total rainfalls. If we do the math, That means 44% of all of California counties received at least 90% of normal rainfall totals. That's a big deal in a state that's been drought stricken for years. So we've talked a lot about wildfire and wildfire risk. And a lot of the wildfire is because we've had this prolonged drought in California. And now we've had this prolonged rainfall. Does it change what the wildfire risk in California? The wildfire risk in California will certainly be changing over time. Um, it's and it'll be going up in areas and down down in other areas a lot. You know, in in the long run, as the climate evolves, um, it's it's as of yet unclear what that pathway will be. Um, in the short term, like what's going to happen today, tomorrow, next year, this year, the additional rain will will eventually result in, in um, growth that could fuel future fires. It could also result in trees being healthier and being more resistant to pine bark beetles. So it's really hard to say. Um, and and the, those complexities are, are further compounded in areas where there have been wildfires and you could potentially have sure, mudslides yeah. and, and erosion resultants. So it's, it's really complex. Um, I think in, in the midterm, these rains this year getting kind of back to normal from a drought standpoint should be beneficial. But uh, again, that, that also will will encourage the growth yeah. of more fuel. 
Yeah, the, the natural variability in wildfire risk far outweighs the, the trend line that we've mm. got. So uh, the, the focus is on this year, next year. Certainly the rain brings a lot more foliage and the foliage, when it dries, brings on higher risk. It's not clear if it means higher risk this ah. year though, because we don't, we haven't seen the spring roll out yet. If we get a long dry summer, then yeah, it's Katie bar the door. But if we see a, uh, a cool summer where this it's soaked into the ground, we don't have as much risk, uh, but that's just delaying. It's deferring the risk. It's, it's there, it's looming, it's coming at us, but we, uh, so it should be a concern and you should remain ever vigilant. I'm glad you alluded to that, Tom, just like it, it really comes back to the unknown and what we, what we don't, what we don't expect. You have to just kind of prepare for it. But on that topic of unknown, you made a reference that I have no idea what you were talking about. And I could tell Kent had no idea what you were talking about. So you're going to have to define it for our, our listeners. But you said something about Katie, who, what? Katie, bar the door. It's an exclamation that means watch out. Trouble is on the way. It is an American phrase usually heard in the southern United States, which is why it's not. I don't know how I got it because I didn't <laughs> grow up in the south. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for the clarification there, Tom. So. I, this now leads me to then think, you know, if this becomes more of a new normal, we've talked about climate change a lot on this podcast. Both of you have talked about climate change before on this podcast. If we are leading into wetter winters, more potential for flood, it just begs the question of flood insurance. And we've talked previously as well, too, with Tom, with you. We've talked with Scott Giberson. We've talked about how there's not a lot of people that have flood insurance. Um, I think there's maybe it's 2% of all Californians hold flood insurance. We've talked about how the National Flood Insurance Program, the NFIP, does mandate that you have flood insurance if you are in a designated flood hazard zone, which is not everywhere. Um, we have talked about various events. Hurricane Harvey comes to mind where a lot of the flooding, significant flooding happened outside of the designated hazard zone. So there's a lot of people that were left without flood insurance. Um, I know I don't have flood insurance on my property because my flood risk is incredibly low and the possibility of my house flooding is, is very low. Um, do either of you consider having flood insurance and, you know, either now or in the future, knowing that things may change? I do not make clear. And um, similar to the assessment mm -hmm. you, you made on your property, I made the same assessment on mine that, that the likelihood of my house seeing significant flooding is pretty low. Um, so uh, choosing to, to spend that money instead on sending my kids to college. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it, it's, Will that assessment change over time? Possibly. Yeah. I, I think another way to look at that is that if you are in a, in a, in a property that is subject to flooding and, and a, a good friend of mine in the East Bay um, in Berkeley had significant flooding during this mm -hmm. event, um, the question that comes to mind is, do you get insurance? Do you mitigate the risk? Do you raise your house or put up barriers to, sure. to mitigate what uh, the, the source of, of flooding might be? Those are all good questions to ask and, and the answers are, are likely very personal and localized yeah. depending on the situation in, in which your property yeah. is. Yeah. Tom, what about you? You or others that you've talked to? Yeah. You know, as I, I walked my neighborhood um, during and after the storm, I reflected on the, you know, the flood insurance. Uh, there are an awful lot of people 
that had a loss from a flood. And this represents it's well, even if you can pay for it, it represents it's a unplanned for expense. And that's what we hopefully, you know, put aside for insurance. And you do wonder, is, yeah, why what's what's missing? Why can't we get more people mm-hmm. to buy insurance? Certainly there are the the barriers of communication to get it to concern. It, it's not if you were to interview people in the street, certainly in uh, California has a Mediterranean climate where it doesn't rain for nine months a year. If you ask them any other dry period of time, is blood on your mind? No. Uh, can't hi- mm, highlight yeah. it. There are different priorities. Uh, you know, and there are there are barriers. Insurers don't really, it's a difficult pro- product to offer for insurers. There's not many people who buy it. It's very expensive. Uh, yeah. But we can consider what are the solutions? Uh, do we mitigate? Are there other alternative types of insurance solutions for this? And maybe we'll a little bit of all of the above. Uh, when you think of these the burdens on homeowners, these surprise mm-hmm. losses, you you immediately think of insurance. Yet flood insurance is not widely accepted. It doesn't it, uh, it doesn't hit the urgency or the prioritization of homeowners. Tom's right. Most people I talk to don't have flood insurance, myself included. I live in Southern California and I live in a fire zone so severe that I have two different types of fire insurance on my home. But as long as I can remember, we've been living in a drought warning. So the last thing I'm expecting is enough rain to cause a flood. According to California's Wildfire and Forest Resilience Action Plan, there are actually 12 steps that homeowners can take to harden their homes. And you can find out more about those steps and how taking them may help lower insurance premiums in episode 53. Insurers are reluctant to offer it because it's a very expensive coverage to offer and few buy yeah. it. Uh, it. It's a, something that we have to keep on reconsidering. And, and do we have to have, is it only an indemnity type of insurance policy? Or are there other ways that we could offer some kind of protection for people? who are suffering from these infrequent and rare, but uh, devastating losses. Well, infrequent, but potentially even more frequent too, is something that needs to be considered. But, you you know, it leads me to believe too, you both talked about different priorities. And I, you know, I, in my head, when you talked about different priorities, I prioritized earthquake insurance on this property um, because of the risk of when I look at the relative risk of all of the different hazards. Um, But we actually are in the process of we just have sold this house and we are moving um, and we're relocating to Southern California. And one of the things that was very important to me was finding a home that was not in a high wildfire risk zone, not in a high flood risk zone. You know, earthquakes kind of inevitable in, in California, but it is lower risk than where we are now. And it leads me to question, you know, where are we when we think of all of these hazards that we have in California? Um, I don't want to say, you know, which is the most important because everything is very localized and everything, it really depends on where you are. But yeah, can the two of you just comment just on maybe resilience across California, um, different different types of insurance, you know, flood, earthquake, wildfire, some of those are mandated. Well, earthquake's not mandated, but, you know, flood and wildfire are mandated in certain places. You can't get insurance without them or you can't get a mortgage without them. Um, yeah. So can we just kind of talk about this too? Like, what what do we think? Before we get into what we think, I want to remind our listeners that having an insurance taken out for natural hazards is only one consideration when evaluating mortgage portfolios. 
For lenders and servicers, managing a portfolio of mortgages means not only verifying a borrower's eligibility prior to origination, but it also means being on the lookout for fraud. To explore the importance of managing portfolio risk, visit us in New Orleans, Louisiana from April 12th to the 13th at the 2023 CoreLogic Mortgage Fraud Consortium. See you there. Um, I guess what, what I would say is that there are a number of different um, methods that you could go to address mm -hmm. these sorts of risks. One, mm -hmm. mitigate. So can you make your house safer from a wildfire standpoint? And there certainly are a number of ways that you can mitigate wildfire risk on, on your local, very hyper-local mm -hmm. basis. You can, you can um, clear brush and shrub. You can you know, maintain your house in a way that it is less um, prone to uh, being burned in a wildfire. You can uh, retrofit your house for earthquake. You can uh, perform some tasks that, that would mitigate some of the, the flood risk. So that's mitigation, certainly um, a, a very highly recommended mm -hmm. first step. Um, Insurance transferring that risk to an insurer is is you know traditionally a very good way to go, and I think what we have to do as an industry, or as or what the in insurance industry has to do is is look to see how can uh, insurance for these perils be sustainable in in a in a, a regime where those risks may be going up, and in some places they may be going down. So it's a really difficult problem to solve, but one that we need to start working on right now. Tom, anything to add? Yeah, um, certainly. You know, if we try to understand the perils that are that uh, could affect homes, I live in the East Bay. I live within 10 kilometers of the Hayward Fault, that putting me into a near field, mm -hmm. high risk earthquake area. I live in a hilly community where floods should always be a concern because the water coming down the street it could be go directed into your house if something happens. Um, I live in a wildfire yeah. area were of dense trees and brush. Um, they, I can't point it out, you know, it's that, that mitigation. We have the resilience is our ability to recover. And we really can't use insurance as our primary blocker. We really have to start thinking about how do I strengthen the home? That's what financial insurance is for. It's to cover those, oops, I really didn't see right, that one yeah. coming. Um, but the everyday ones, we, we have to start rethinking how do we strengthen homes and make these everyday, every, these types of events less disruptive. And I think that's a great place to end. How do we make these events less disruptive? Kent, Tom, Tom, Kent, both of you, thank you so much for coming back and joining me today on Core Conversations to chat about the rain that we've had here in California. Thanks, McClare. It was it was great chatting with you, and I look forward to further conversations. Thank you for inviting me to this conversation, McClare. And thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed our latest episode. Please remember to leave us a review and let us know your thoughts and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to be notified when new episodes are released. And thanks to the team for helping bring this podcast to life. Producer Jesse Devenins, editor and sound engineer Romeo Roman, our facts guru Katya Oloy, and social media duo Sarah Buck and Mikaela Brooks. Tune in next time for another core conversation.